Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast series on impact, talking with entrepreneurs and organizational leaders who contribute to building a more cooperative and positive future. I'm Ursula York, the host of this series. I'm a mentor to business people who want to have a positive effect on the world around them, building strong businesses by creating value for their clients, team members, and the larger world. I am so passionate about sharing with you the stories of entrepreneurs and leaders who have impact. They're inspired and energizing role models. I hope you use what you learn here to be inspired about what you can do in your business and beyond. For ongoing inspiration and support to get clear on your impact and put it into action, enter your name and email at workalchemy.com. Today's guest in this podcast series on impact is Michael Gelb, the world's leading authority on the application of genius thinking to personal and organizational development, Michael J. Gelb is a pioneer in the fields of creative thinking, executive coaching, and innovative leadership. His clients include Merck, Microsoft, and Nike. Michael co-directed the acclaimed Leading Innovation Seminar at the Darden Graduate School of Business for more than 10 years, and also teaches for the London Business School and is a professor of practice in creativity and innovation at Shivnadar University in India. Michael is the author of 15 books, including How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, and his latest release, The Art of Connection, Seven Relationship Building Skills Every Leader Needs Now. In addition to his many accomplishments and honors, Michael is a professional juggler who has performed with the Rolling Stones. So on that note, welcome to the podcast, Michael. I'm so delighted to have you here. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. So tell us, how did you come to develop this, uh, these leadership, the leadership insights that you have and, and the business that you have now? How did that come about? Well, it, the leadership insights really came about by spending time with leaders <laughs> because I, I started out with some insights around creativity and innovation, which I thought were really important for everyone to know. It, it, it just amazed me that, that school did not teach people how to think creatively. If anything, it taught the opposite. And when I'm referring to creativity, I don't just mean art or music or theater, as wonderful as those disciplines are. I mean how to think creatively about your life, about your work. Uh, creative thinking, turns out, is something anybody can learn. Uh, there are tools of creative thinking. There are phases of the creative process. And I've been working for since the beginning of my career, helping people develop literacy in the framework of creativity and innovation. And fortunately, I was engaged right from the very beginning by some wonderful leaders who had visions about facilitating more cooperative, positive, healthy workplaces. And they thought creativity was part of that. So I was teaching creativity. And one of my first clients in 1982, I was put on retainer by the Learning Resources Division of DuPont. Mm -hmm. And I wound up working with them for, well, actually, I worked with DuPont until my last client retired there in, in the mid-2000s. Uh, uh, so over the course of that time, from the original gentleman who engaged me to a number of other clients there, I worked with some tremendous leaders. And I got to see how they applied 
the insights I had about creativity to really elevate the culture and the this was, you know, before, this was in the days before they called it employee engagement. I think they used to call it employee satisfaction. Right, <laughs> right. But it's the same thing. So so then uh, in 1985, I was engaged by a fellow who at the time was the executive vice president of CNP Telephone. He shortly thereafter became the president of CNP Telephone. And then he went on to be president of National Public Radio for four years. So I worked with him as his executive coach and uh, designing, delivering, team building, and creative thinking programs for his groups. And I got to watch him in action. He was another amazing leader. And I, you know, I could just go on and on about the great leaders I've had the chance to work with. Fortunately, they're the ones who actually hired me. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been paying attention and aiming to figure out what really works in leadership and besides creative thinking and understanding innovation, what really works is, is knowing how to build relationships. So that's, that's why I wrote the art of connection. Mm. Well, uh, there's a lot of myths around leadership. I think people have a lot of misconceptions and it's such a pertinent topic for entrepreneurs because all entrepreneurs are leaders and folks who are in organizations obviously have the opportunity to be leaders as well. What are some of those myths and, and, uh, what's your response to them? How do you see those? Myths. Well, yeah, the I mean, the biggest one is the idea that people are just born leaders, and that you either have it or you don't, and you're charismatic, and only extroverts can be leaders, and so on. And it's just not true. And, and it's a dangerous belief, because it stops people who might be a little bit quieter, a little bit more low key from feeling that they can develop and express their talent for leadership. So we know now that there are many different styles of leadership and that it's important to understand what your natural style might be. And then one of the themes of, of the book is how to move outside of whatever your natural style is so that you can be much more flexible. I call it versatility, which is more important than, than ever before. And you know, the other, the other, there's another one too, which is, it's people have a confusion because a lot of what we have to do in the world of work is management. You know, we have to, we do have to look after uh, finances. We have to measure things. We have to set specific targets and then monitor our ability to meet those targets. We have to hold ourselves and other people accountable for getting results. And, then there's what they call leadership, which is generally defined as you know, setting a higher goal, inspiring people to achieve that goal, getting them to work together, and building the relationships to make that all happen. The, the problem is that, that people separate these two things, and my definition of leadership now today is that you have to really be able to do both and be really fluid and versatile, once again, in shifting from a management role to a more visionary leadership role, but then back into a management role as appropriate, rather than some people who are just 
always talking about the big picture and the vision and, and developing people, but aren't paying attention to the numbers. So they go out of business. And then other people are just monitoring the numbers and measuring everything and they have no vision. So nobody wants to work there. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, an issue for leaders everywhere and entrepreneurs too, of, of keeping an eye on both aspects and really being able to set a larger establish a, a larger vision, a big picture kind of view so people know what what the the larger mission is or the, the purpose is, as well as managing those day-to-day things, which can be a real challenge. Right. Well, that was, you know, it's a classic uh, Stephen Covey humorous note about how managers are down there cutting their way through the forest, sharpening their saws and slicing along. But the leader climbs the tallest tree, looks around and yells down, hey, we're cutting through the wrong forest. And the managers respond, shut up, we're making progress. (laughs) (laughs) But I think in reality, we need to be able to be down there cutting through the, the path and then going up making sure we're cutting through the right uh, the right forest and and leveraging everyone engaged in the endeavor to feel as uh, empowered to do the best job they can and have a sense of mission and purpose and alignment that is more than just about profit and and this is more important today in today's world of work uh, i mean profit obviously is important But what we've learned is that you'll be more profitable if you take a long-term view, if you have concern for all your stakeholders as a core part of your approach to doing business rather than just short-term return for your shareholders. And as younger people, we have the most sophisticated generation of people in the workplace today. They, they know what's possible and they want to feel engaged. They want to feel part of something that's more than just making money. So that's, that's, it makes the leadership challenge today uh, maybe greater than ever before, but also more exciting because there's more possibilities. I mean, now that you know, now that we all know, it's research validated. Uh, my friend Raj Sasodia wrote the classic book, Firms of Endearment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Great book. Right. Fantastic. He also wrote Conscious Capitalism. So now that you know that you will make more money, that people will love working for your company, your customers will love you, your stakeholders will love you, and you'll be more profitable if you apply these kinds of principles. Why would you consider doing the only way anybody would ever consider doing anything else if they were just ignorant and didn't understand that this was possible? But now we know it's possible. So uh, my goal is to uh, help people realize not only that it's possible, but that it's it's something that they can realize. And then, okay, what are the practical, everyday skills we need to make that idea real? And to me, that's co- uh, creative thinking, uh, uh, innovation, literacy, and the skills introduced in the art of connection. Mm. Well, one of the things you talk about in the book that really struck me that you said that humility is a key component in meaningful 
connection in meaningful relationships. Can you talk a bit about that? And, and why, why is that? I mean, that seems to put you in such a vulnerable place. I mean, I, I, I know where you're going with this, but I, and I agree. I just, <laughs> I want everybody else to hear about it as well. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. It's, well, it's great that you use that word vulnerable because that's part of where the confusion comes. I, I love the work of Brene Brown and I think she's made a great contribution by sensitizing people to that notion and there are words that I think more effectively convey what we're aiming to get across here. Because, you know, the word vulnerable comes from the root vulnerare, which means to wound. Hmm. And I actually looked up the synonyms for it, and they include to be a sucker or a sitting duck. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> so I'm sure that's not what Brene Brown <laughs> means when she uses no. the word. Right. Uh, but it's what we're really talking about is being accessible, being open, being receptive, being human, not being arrogant, uh, not being overly armored, uh, but being available to connect with others. And that that humility is surprisingly the source of real confidence. Because if you're if you're if you're based if your identity is based in your own egotism and your need to be right, rather than in your curiosity and your openness to learn, well then people don't want to share with you. They don't want to confide in you. They don't want to trust you, and they certainly don't want to follow you. But if you demonstrate that you're caring, that you're curious, that you're open, that you respect others through your curiosity to learn what their contributions might be. And this is especially true the more senior you are. Uh, it is so wonderfully engaging. I mean, and I've been blessed. You know, these are the kind of leaders I've been able to be around. These have been my clients. Uh, you know, when I started, I was younger than all of them by far. And now I'm older than all of them by far. Uh, but they all have this uh, uh, common touch, this sense of respect for and curiosity about and interest in other human beings. So people sense that these folks are caring and not arrogant. Uh, and so they they're very open to and very trusting of and very engaged with the the cultures that these kind of folks create. Mm -hmm. Well, something you mentioned around arrogance and the way I think this is a way that uh, some leaders are perceived. And I, I often think behind that arrogance, there's, there's a fear. There's a fear of not being enough, a fear of being wrong and therefore called out in some way or, or, somehow suffering a consequence for not knowing everything. So how do you how do you kind of navigate that with people when they're developing their leadership and feeling like, well, arrogance is the stance I have to have because I'm I just want to protect myself. And they may not say it that overtly, but that might sure. be behind it. Well, you know, it's very insightful because that that is arrogance is an expression of weakness. It's an expression of fear. It's an expression uh, paradoxically, of of someone who's not in touch with 
their vulnerability. So they're afraid of being wounded. They're afraid of being a sucker and a sitting duck. So they over respond to that by being armored and attempting to be controlling. And the thing is about those, you know, those people, they rarely seek help. (laughs) The people who need it the most, you know, tend not to read books like this <laughs> and they de- they definitely don't hire me i mean I've, i don't you know i don't get hired by arrogant people because they don't they think they know it all so why would they you know pay a lot of money to a, a consultant <laughs> <laughs> they just want technical consultants right i you know i get engaged by i mean i get engaged by people who are very very smart but they, they have enough confidence in their ability to see what really needs to happen. But, and, and you know, the, I, with, one thing I've learned about these folks is a lot of times their first thought, their first insight is accurate. They, they're the kind of people who could, who might, it might actually be justified for them to be arrogant in the sense that they really are savvy. I mean, and they're usually ahead of the game. They are seeing things that other people aren't seeing. But then they create a sense of inclusion and partnership and alignment. And, you know, it's actually Thomas Edison was, as everybody knew, uh, uh, a genius. But in his original laboratory, if you worked there, it was a regular practice of Edison to walk over to every worker and ask them, tell me what you think about the project that we're working on. Hmm. And he gave them his absolute full attention. Now, they knew he was a genius and he was way, way, way ahead of a uh, vet. Yet, can you imagine how motivated people were every single day to come to work and know that one of the great geniuses – uh, uh, ever was might ask them their opinion. Yeah. So do you think do you think they were prepared? Do you think that they were passionate, engaged, and were thinking about their project so that when Mr. Edison asked them something, they could give an answer that really contributed something? <laughs> so, you know, it's a level of engagement that uh, uh, is well. It's, you know, Edison they generated 1,093 United States patents and created three entirely new industries that changed the world forever. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's he's the first person I know of in a business environment to really create a truly innovative culture. And people don't realize that a big part of how he did it was with this engaging humility and curiosity and respect for the people in his laboratory. Mm. Well, and it's so... Um it shows this, it's a great connecting um, thing that he did because it really shows respect for what they have to contribute and offer and um, to be listened to in that deep way. I know that's something you, you talk about quite a bit in the book too. You you also wrote a book called Innovate Like Edison. Isn't that right? Yes, I did. Well, yeah. <laughs> a, a number of years ago, I got a phone call from a woman Uh, She introduced herself. She said, hi, I'm Sarah Miller Caldecott. She said, I'm Thomas Edison's great, great, great grandniece. (laughs) Wow. And yeah, she told me she was uh, an MBA from Dartmouth. And she told me she read How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. 
which is one of your books. Yeah. Right. And so she was really inspired and she wanted to talk to me. And as soon as she said all this, I got an entrepreneurial entrepreneurial idea. I said, we need to write a book together and we'll do for Edison what I did for Da Vinci, which yes, we did. It was another phenomenal learning experience. So, you know, I've learned from, from people from the past who I never met uh, in their physical embodiment, like Leonardo da Vinci and Thomas Edison and Queen Elizabeth I, who I wrote about in another book, uh, Plato, Brunelleschi, Copernicus, Gandhi, Einstein are all people that I've, I've, I've studied and written about. Uh, and then I've been blessed to work with leaders who have been embodied uh, running big companies and see how they apply this universal human wisdom in all kinds of challenging circumstances. So I've learned from both uh, my virtual mentors from the past and real live folks who I'm still learning from. Uh, uh, I have a client in New Jersey who uh, is in the asbestos remediation business. Mm. And this guy started his company. This is a great story. He started his company because he was remediating asbestos in a school. And he wrote up the report that there was an unhealthy amount uh, and that it was was not stable. Because sometimes there's a, a significant amount, but it's stable enough that it doesn't pose an immediate danger. But in this case, it posed an immediate danger. So he wrote up his report and he gets a message back a few days later saying, we need you to change your report. Uh, and there's, you know, extra thousand dollars in it for you if you do. So he said, are you kidding me? I'm not taking a thousand dollars to poison children. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Wow. Uh, and the story goes on from there, but basically he, he resigned and he started his own company based on this, you know, integrity and kindness and making a difference in the world by removing toxins from uh, places where we don't want toxins like schools. Uh, And this guy's a a fabulous uh, visionary leader. This company's now been going for, for 30 years and I'm working with them because they've done such a great job of remediating all the asbestos that they need to figure out other great stuff that they can do with all these skills that they have. So right. we, we've been thinking really creatively together, but just you know, to, to be with, with someone, you can feel the culture that this gentleman has created is so positive because every, everyone respects and is drawn to the core integ- integrity around which this company was formulated. Hmm. Well, um, it's it's one of the things that I'm struck by in the work as you talk about it, that um, this work of connecting with others in this very human and vulnerable or, hu- or with humility way. There we um, go. <laughs> <laughs> humble. We know, humble. We, we'll just word. agree that we know what we mean when we say vulnerable, so it's okay. <laughs> humble was the word I was looking for. Humble so, is what we really mean, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm really interested to hear how, how what's the feedback been or how do you see the impact that your work in – in in this area of leadership is having how how is it affecting 
people's experiences and organizations and personally? Oh, gosh. Wow. Well, that's uh, how much time do we have? Because <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll go for the executive summary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the greatest thrill in my career, which I get on a regular basis, is when I see a light go on in people's eyes when they realize, first of all, that they can be more creative than than they had ever imagined. I mean, I help people learn how to generate more ideas in less time, make connections between those ideas that they might have never made, and then help them navigate through the phases of the creative process. And I do this in every kind of, of company all over the world, and I love it more than ever. And I also, you know, in the years of doing this, actually discovered that it wasn't that difficult to train people to be way more creative, way, way, way more creative. And, you know, I saw Leonardo's a great ally in that. Uh, Edison's a great ally in that. But then, you know, because I wasn't just doing seminars and riding off into the sunset and with a lot of these clients, they put me on retainer and my job was to help them change their culture, to be more innovative and have that translate into better business results. So what I found was, the really challenging part was helping them build the relationships they needed to get the buy-in to make, make their creative ideas come true. And, you know, that I, for me, the, the real feedback, I mean, I love getting nice letters from clients of which, you know, I have a nice uh, collection and so on. Uh, but I've always, I've always really judged it by, how how successful the client really is and how fulfilled they really are and did they really achieve their business goals and do they feel that learning to think like Leonardo, innovate like Edison and now the art of connection, do they feel that these things that I've been sharing with them really substantively help them in their careers and, and, and fortunately, obviously, the answer is yeah, they do. And sometimes I've been with some clients now long, you know, they've retired, whereas I'm just warming up. <laughs> and 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 many of them have have told me, you know, that that the work they did to learn to think like Leonardo, innovate like Edison, and apply the art of connection uh, forms the, the through line that that they consider the highlights of their their careers. So wow. Yeah, that's really fulfilling. That's you know, I, I mean, obviously, I love that too because I, I, you know, I, you can tell I'm on a mission. I mean, this is people. I really feel like people need these skills more than ever. We need to be more creative now than ever before. We have very complex issues to deal with. We need to collaborate. We need to leverage diversity. We need to get different kinds of people understanding each other, empathizing with one another, and finding creative solutions. And, and this is urgent and important. So at every level, in a business, in families, uh, in communities, in the country, in the world, uh, these skills are critical. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that, um, I mean, you've put it so clearly in terms of what are the implications for that both personally and on a business level. So that's that's really powerful. Is is there uh, one of the things you talk about in your book, The Art of Connection, is how personal energy 
is coming into play in leadership. And that's something I always ask people around this topic of impact, because as you get more engaged, as you get more involved in, in the work that you're doing, there's a tendency to kind of overdo it and to pour your energy into it and not really practice great self-care. I guess that's one side of the equation. And then the other is holding back energy or not using it in a way that really is helps create powerful connections. So can you talk a bit about your perspectives, both personally as an entrepreneur, which you are, and also, <laughs> and also from, you know, the standpoint of, of leaders and, and their energy. Sure. Well, I was blessed to co-direct a program at the University of Virginia's uh, Darden Graduate School of Business with Professor Jim Clausen, who's cited in The Art of Connection, uh, for his seminal work in this area. I mean, Jim wrote many years ago that leadership is about managing energy, mm-hmm. first in yourself and then in other people. And uh, Jim makes it clear in his classic book, Level 3 Leadership, when you try to get people to do something through the carrot or stick approach, uh, you mostly get energy going in reverse of where you want it to go. (laughs) (laughs) In what way? Right? Well, people will resist you either actively or passively Uh because in the world today, especially people don't really like to be manipulated in that old-fashioned carrot and stick way. And a lot of people still don't know any better, so that that's just, you know, that's what was done to them, so they just uh, do that to others. But uh, many people in, in big companies are, are more sophisticated now, and they try to just reason with people and explain, well, if you do this and you do this and you do this, uh, here's what's gonna happen, and don't you think that makes sense, and so on and so forth. Uh, And as Jim points out, reasoning with people and trying to convince them of something, you know, you might generate a level of agreement or, or, or compliance with uh, whatever it is that uh, uh, is being proposed. But if you want passion, if you want engagement, if you want highest levels of energy, then you've got to give people a sense of purpose. You got to give people a deeper connection with whatever it is you're hoping they will help you accomplish. So you have to link with their deeper values. And in order to do that, first you have to know what their deeper values are and you have to try to attract people who share the core values that will inspire the highest uh, level of energy. Mm-hmm. So so in terms of managing energy uh, in a in a culture and creating a, a culture of engagement and passion that's really important. Then at the same time you, you you raise a very important aspect of this which is you have to balance your own energy so that you're not so passionate that you lose your your perspective and your health and your wellness. And, and this, is, this is a discipline that if you're not practicing something, 
then you definitely don't have this. <laughs> you know, so people need a practice in the world today. We need personal energy management practices. This is a big part of what I, what I teach people. I draw on all sorts of different ancient traditions, Chinese, Indian, uh, and it all validated by contemporary science. But we, we need to know how to be balanced and how to balance our own personal energy so that we can be passionate, but in a sustainable way. Mm -hmm. and, and what are the things that you do that you find particularly helpful? Just well, uh, gosh, I have lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, do, uh, I do Tai Chi every day. Uh, I do Qigong every day. I meditate every day. I, when I'm home, when I'm not out with a client, I go for a walk in the woods in silence every day. Uh, I make a mind map every day of all my different things I want to do uh, uh, and look at it, how it all fits together. And I make sure I include the self-care and self-management component. I also shut off my electronic devices uh, around dinner time and do my best to never turn them on again until the morning. <laughs> I confess I, I sometimes fall off that particular uh, intention, but I'm pretty good about it, and it makes a huge difference, and that's a really important element. If you want to have deeper, real connection in your life, uh, you've got to get off the electronic brain hack of social media. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that digital, that daily digital vacation is, uh, people use different terms for it. I, I'm seeing that more and more. And it's, uh, it's, it certainly got me thinking about how I'm communicating and whether, uh, you know, taking that break is, uh, is valuable. And obviously you believe it is. So I've never heard anybody talk about a mind map for the day. What a, what a great idea. I love that mind map. Approach. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful way to give you a sense of the big picture uh, and attention to details. Plus, it makes it makes it much more, much more creative, playful, imaginative way of looking at your day. And at the same time, it helps you be more precise, more analytical, and more focused on the details. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, in the course of, of this impact that you've had, I mean, you've, you've reached many, many people with the work that you do. And it's, it's powerful. If you're, the fact that you're getting feedback on so consistently about uh, the power of the work that you're doing, it's, uh, it's clear that, you know, you've, you've made an impact. You are making an impact and you'll continue to do so. In the, in the course of, of doing that though, we all kind of bump up against things. And I'm, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share an example of where things haven't necessarily gone smoothly and, and how you've used some of these skills to kind of move through that. I, I always think it's helpful to share. Okay. It's not this sort of, isn't everything amazing and here's my pro career progression. Oh, sure. It was awesome. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, there's a things one of the secrets of life is learning where we have influence, where we can make a difference and where we can't. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when I was younger, I just thought I'm going to change the whole world. I'm going to, you know, I believe it or not, I moved to Washington, D.C. So because I thought that I would just teach the government how to think creatively. <laughs> 
I love your optimism. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, obviously, despite my tenure, uh, that didn't work out too well. Because <laughs> uh, government, it turned out, wasn't interested at all in in innovation or, or uh, creativity. Uh, I was I was really disappointed when I found out that education wasn't either. Uh, fortunately, business was. But even you know, in my my work with with client companies over the years, things have. I'll give you, you know one example. I mean, I worked with one group, uh, 450 people, clinical research department of a, a major a pharmaceutical company, and when we started with them, they you know they had a employee engagement survey, and it was it was just not acceptable. It was somewhere around something around like 25% approval of you know engagement of being there. Uh, however, they they measured it. But I just remember it was 25 out of 100. 100 would be full engagement. We love it here. Oh my God, it's the best place to be. And, and zero was you know we're 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 all quitting. Right. <laughs> so they were around 25, which is not particularly brilliant. Uh, and I had an amazing opportunity uh, to work with them. Uh, we rewrote their vision, their mission, their values, uh, uh, trained everybody to think like Leonardo da Vinci, to innovate like Edison in many of the ideas in the art of connection, uh, did team building programs. And at the end of whatever it was, I think about 18 months, their their engagement score went up to 87%. Wow. Okay. So now this sounds, this is great. And I was hoping, okay, we're going to roll this out. We're going to transform this whole huge company. And then they disbanded that division. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> so it just, okay, well, we created this amazing culture, got so much more buy-in, and then everybody was reassigned. Uh, and I've had that happen. I mean, I can't tell you how many times that these huge tectonic uh, changes have undone the work that – I was engaged in, in terms of the culture that we were creating for a particular group who then were just no longer a group. Uh, having said that, that's, I'm philosophical about it in the sense that those are like seeds. And then a lot of times what happens is people, I mean, I actually just had a client. I was just up doing a, pro, a program for another client, uh, in the big pharma business, uh, who was part of that group from years ago. So, you know, she re she left, went to another company, rose up to become director of the lab for this company and engaged me to teach a mind mapping seminar mm -hmm. uh, for their PhD scientists. Uh, and she told me she said this made a huge difference in my in my career. So, I'm always thinking about you know, can I touch the lives of the individual and then yeah, we want to leverage that for the business purpose because that's what gives companies the inspiration to actually write me checks, but I can't control, you know, I can only control, uh, leading the best seminar possible and, 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 and leveraging that, uh, in the best way in, a, in the circumstance that I'm, uh, involved in, but I've seen these things change and, and, and shift and be disbanded or be acquired, and that's why I tell people, I tell people in the bidding of uh, the art of connection, you, know, you don't have a job anymore. 
Uh, if you work for a company, you're an entrepreneur with one client. Right. Uh, and it could change tomorrow. But if you understand how to think creatively, if you know the skills of the art of connection, you're going to be fine. Uh, you're going to thrive as as change continues to to accelerate. Yeah, and there's no such thing as job security anymore. So I was I was very struck by your story because I used to work in the clinical research department of a major pharmaceutical company. So when you started to tell that story, I thought, oh, I wonder if that was somewhere where I've been. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, that that whole thing of affecting individuals, yeah, you do plant that seed, you do have that effect on people, and they go elsewhere and, and talk about it and share their experience or become a role model for other people, whether it's a direct or indirect effect. Exactly. And that's the thing is, you know, if it, I mean, I think about it in terms of if, if we can get people to be more creative and be more contactful and more caring and wiser and more compassionate uh, in their relationships with their families because these are the same principles you know that uh, i mean i apply this in work because that's how you know, that's that's just my business but i this is another uh, phenomenon i think is is changing is we, we used to think of this idea of work-life balance and i just think that's humans are humans you're the same human in work that you are when you're not in the building that you work in or the uh, on the clock for the whoever you're working with yeah absolutely and, and the right and the integrity and the sense of of uh, being aligned with your higher values in all those modalities and treating other people with caring and respect and dignity and loving kindness it's, it's why his holiness the dalai lama says my religion is kindness mm -hmm. he's not it's not just a sentimental nice thing it's that this this is how we change our world in the little little ways if 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 everyone practiced the religion of kindness we would have an entirely different world and it's challenging sometimes when there's disagreement, when people don't like uh, your actions or you don't like their actions or you feel that uh, a, an agreement was violated. and uh, So this is why you know, the book, uh, The Art of Connection, builds up to the, the seventh chapter, which focuses on creative approaches to conflict resolution. And the reason it, it comes last because humility comes first, because if you don't have that, you're probably not going to read the rest. And that's what you need to learn. Right. Uh, and, and, and resolving conflict comes last because if you don't practice the other six skills, you'll never be able to apply it in the face of real stress and conflict. Mm. Well, um, yeah, I mean, that's a great progression that you just described of, of uh, how to look at that. I, I wonder if, if you had to share one thing, I know you, one thing, I know you cover seven skills in the book, but, but just if you had to share one insight with someone uh, who's looking at, well, I want to, I want to make a positive contribution. I want to be out there and, and uh, planting seeds. What would you say to people if it was just one thing you could share? I would say, the Latin motto in the beginning of the book, conjungere 
ad salvendum. And then I would quickly translate it for them. <laughs> right. It means uh, connect before solving. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the one real simplest takeaway is put people first. People before transactions. People before the sale. People before dealing with whatever the problem or the issue or the conflict or the challenge is. Connect with people first in a face-to-face, soul-to-soul, fully present human way, and you'll be amazed at how much more resourceful and creative and fluid you are in, in finding solutions. That's great. Um, well, Michael, I, I want to thank you for sharing what you have today. Um, your your focus on create create like Leonardo da Vinci, innovate like Edison, and then this overarching connection, uh, connecting with others. It's so valuable for people to hear. And uh, I really want to thank you for sharing your experiences and what you've learned uh, over the years with us today. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. So if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? My website is michaelgelb.com. That's G-E-L-B, michaelgelb.com. Got lots of uh, free articles and we have a free newsletter and video. We have a YouTube channel. We're just gearing up to put all sorts of free, helpful, fun stuff on the YouTube channel. And uh, obviously, they can get uh, the book on the resources page. And we'd love to hear from people at michaelgelb.com. Great. Thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. It's, uh, it's, it's high impact, and it's, uh, it's helpful in bringing us all closer together. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Join us for more podcasts on impact. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast channel on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll be notified as soon as new podcasts are available. Thank you to everyone listening for being here. Until next time, keep that positive flow of energy going in your business so that you can have your own impact. Join our community of entrepreneurs like you by entering your name and email at workalchemy.com.